Now let's all uh, bow together, please, and we will take a start, have a word of prayer. I trust the Lord will draw near and help us as we meet before Him. Eternal God and blessed Father in heaven, we bow before Thee once more. We rejoice that another Lord's Day has come around, that we are found here in Thy house, and that we have the privilege of gathering together in this manner to wait on Thee, to hear Thy Word, to focus on the Scriptures that we will consider today. We thank Thee for the way of access that we have unto Thee to gather together in Christ's name. We thank Thee for the one Redeemer, the one Mediator, the one great High Priest of our salvation. Lord, we focus our minds on Him. We turn away from every other pretended Savior, from all of the false religion of a fallen world. We thank Thee that Thou and Thy grace has given to us the Holy Scriptures. We bless Thee that therein we have a full revelation of all that is necessary to our salvation. We thank Thee, O Lord, that Thy Word is sufficient, and that it does guide us and, and direct us on what we should believe concerning God, and what duty God requires of man. And Lord, we come before Thee today, and we thank Thee for Christ, who is the center and the substance of all true revelation. And Lord, we rejoice in His person, we rejoice in His work. We thank Thee that He came, that He died, that He rose, that He ascended back to heaven, and that there He ever lives to pray for us. Lord, hear Christ today, look upon Thine anointed. Remember us, O God, as we gather together. Lord, we desire Thee, we long for Thy presence. We need the help of God. And for this we earnestly beseech Thee that in every assembly in this house and all the different classes, Bible classes and Sunday school classes, and this Bible class, the Lord will be present. And Lord, right through this day, may Thy name be glorified. May a, a mighty work be done. And Lord, may we know Thee coming alongside of us to bless us and to do us good. Lord, may hearts be touched. We pray that this day Thou wilt save souls. Thou wilt build up the saints. Thou wilt gather in those who have wandered away from Thee. And may Thy Spirit move mightily and powerfully upon the hearts of men and women, young people, and our little children. And so, Lord, abide with us, we pray. We pray for help now in this class. We pray that each brother and sister here and those online will be helped mightily by the Spirit of God. So come among us, we pray, and bless us now as we wait in Thee. We'll give Thee the praise and the glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen and amen. Now, it's good to see you all gathered in our Bible class today, and we welcome you heartily. Welcome those online, and we pray that God's blessing and presence will be known and will be felt by everyone who gathers with us for this class. We come today to Haggai. Let's open our Bibles, please, the book of Haggai. And we'll read the final three or four verses of chapter 1. We'll be looking at this chapter as a whole in the, in the study today, but let's just read the final part of the chapter to get a view of what the Lord had to say through Haggai. So Haggai chapter 1, verse number 13. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And we know that God will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. Now, the last three books of the Old Testament were written by Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. I'm sure every one of us is aware of that, and we know at least the names of these three men. They are known as the post-exilic prophets. That is so because they lived and they ministered after the exile in Babylon had come to an end. 
Two of them were contemporaries, Haggai and Zechariah. Malachi is a little later than them, and it's his book that closes out the, New Te- the Old Testament. Now, we come today to look at Haggai uh, for this particular study, and we'll come back to it again in the will of the Lord. His name means festive or festal one, festal in the sense of coming from the word to feast or a festival, whatever way you want to think about it. In that detail of the meaning of his name, there is, of course, the thought of rejoicing and praise and gladness. That's relevant. That's very appropriate in terms of a detail because Haggai lived at the time when the second temple was built in Jerusalem by the remnant who returned from Babylon. And I am saying a few things here that you're all familiar with as you've been following the study in Ezra that we have been doing on Sunday mornings. But the erection of the Lord's house in those days would have been a festive or a festal occasion. And therefore, God saw fit to raise up as one of the two prophets at that time, this man Haggai, whose name has that meaning. And therefore, there would have been festivity in Haggai's soul, I firmly believe. The name that he carries undoubtedly is a reflection of his heart. He was a man who came along to speak to God's people, to help them, to guide them, and of course to rejoice with them when the temple, the second temple, was finally uh, completed and was built uh, according to the mind and the will of God. In chapter 2, verse number 3, we have an important verse. Just look at that verse for a moment, please. Chapter 2, verse number 3, it says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? The question is asked here by the Lord, of course, through Haggai, to those who had seen the first house, that is Solomon's temple. And remember your history here. Solomon had ministered um, through his reign and his leadership. The first temple was built. It was then destroyed at the time of the captivity. And these captives in the days of men like Haggai, Zechariah, and of course Ezra, they have come back from Babylon to rebuild the temple. Now, there was nothing left really. It was just a heap of rubbish, and it had been completely destroyed. But they built the second temple right on the same site as that on which the first temple stood originally. And so, the question is now asked to these uh, remnant people who have come back from Babylon, who is left among you that saw this first house in her glory? And of course, the the inference of that verse is that there were people present who had lived before the captivity, had gone into Babylon, and now have returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they're watching and they're seeing the new temple being re- or the new temple being built, uh, a replacement for the first temple, and so they have been, uh, they, they were alive when the first temple was standing. That means they're at least in their mid seventies. They have to be because. Seventy years have gone by since the first temple was destroyed, and if we assume they were maybe little children when they saw the first house, well, we put it that way just to give the least amount of time uh, for their age, and perhaps they were more than that. Maybe people here who are in the 80s or 90s or even 100, people in Bible times we know live quite a long time. But that verse is phrased in such a way as the question comes from Haggai about the first temple, that we may actually conclude that he himself had seen the first temple. How could he ask the question, really, if he had never seen the first temple? So, there's a clue as to the age of this man when he began to minister. Well, at least as far as the record of his own book is concerned, we feel that from this verse, not only was he referring to people Uh, beyond himself he had seen the first temple, but he himself had seen that temple. That's the tenor of this question. He's saying, remember what it was like, and how do you see this new temple now as it goes up? And so, this means that Haggai was an elderly man. 
he may have been, as I say, in his mid-70s like some of the other people, or even maybe more than that. He was an elderly man, and yet God took him and He used him to uh, minister, to preach, as we will see in a moment or two, and also to write this book that bears His name. Now, what we have in this book, I believe, is a, an interesting thing, because what you really have here, and what you listen carefully to what I'm saying, uh, because I believe this to be the truth, what you have here are Haggai's sermon notes. You know, ministers, preachers have notes. Now, if you look there at chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. He's described as the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. That's a graphic expression. It indicates that he was completely immersed in what God had given him to preach. It was upon his soul. And this particular phrase, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message, sums up all that Haggai was as a preacher whom God had blessed and whom God had used. If you'll go back quickly to, with me to Ezra chapter 5, just to get a couple of references there about this man as a preacher. Haggai, sorry, Ezra 5 verse number 1, and then also Ezra 6 verse 14. But first of all, Ezra 5 verse 1, Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied. And in the Old Testament, as it is sometimes in the New Testament, the verb to prophesy really means to preach. And so that's what's going on here. It's a reference to Haggai and Zechariah as preachers. They prophesied unto the Jews that were in Jerusalem, or sorry, in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then chapter 6 and the verse number 14, And the elders of the Jews built it, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. And so we have a reference to this man just taking Haggai as a preacher. He brought what the Lord had laid upon his heart. He ministered to these people who needed encouragement. He needed uh, more than encouragement, as we're going to see, but they certainly needed encouragement, and he ministered to them along with his colleague, Zechariah, the son of Ido. He proclaimed the Word of God, as these Ezra references show. But he did something else. This is the point I'm making. We have, we have Haggai's sermon notes, because he put down in writing what he preached to the Lord's people. And in that sense, therefore, in the book of Haggai, where we have four sermons recorded, we have Haggai's sermon notes. And as I thought about that, I just thought I would make reference to it because I believe it's important just to underline that men of God down through time have had their written notes, what they brought to the people. They put it down on paper, then they went and they delivered it to the Lord's people. I know that Haggai's sermon notes as he wrote this little book, he was moved by the Holy Spirit to do that. So, this is a, a, a writing that is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we have here the structure and the content of what he actually preached on these occasions as we look carefully at his book. And so, let's just note that in passing, folks. Sermon notes are essential. And it's something to keep in mind. Now, I, I sometimes I have to smile to myself because I hear uh, people pray, and I know they mean a certain thing about this, but they'll say, Lord, take him away from his notes. And that's not a wise thing to pray, may I say, because if the preacher leaves his notes, what God has given him to say and the details and the structure, he's bound to lose his train of thought. So, don't pray that prayer, may I say to you. Just pray, Lord, help him to preach, and the Lord knows all that he needs. I just say it as a practical point, because here is the evidence that this man Haggai had his notes, and then God moved him to put it down in Scripture, as we see, to bring to the Lord's people, not only in his day, but down through the generations of time. 
And so while you want the preacher to have liberty and freedom and power, that does not negate the fact that he has to do his study, he has to get it down in front of him, he needs to know where he's going, and you pray that the Lord will help him through all that. That is what church history teaches us, because church history is full of examples of this fact. If you take the writings of the Reformers, the writings of the Puritans, the writings of Spurgeon, or some other great man of God down through church history, what are you actually looking at? You're looking at what they preached, and they put it down in writing, and it's recorded for the generations thereafter. And so they were moved by the Lord to record their sermons or messages, whatever you want to call them, and therefore the fruits of their labor are available to the church of God for generations, hundreds of years after their days. And brethren and sisters, that's a very important thing. How poor would the church of Jesus Christ be without the printed records of the sermons of these men I've mentioned, the early church fathers even, and uh, those who came after them, and in the days of the Reformation, the Puritans that I've mentioned, those were men whom God used, whom He raised up to preach in those days, and they were all preachers, but they were all men who put down in their written form what they had preached, and no doubt they added to it or they uh, they refined it and so forth. But if you take all the writings of Calvin or Luther or any of these men, and then the Puritans, John Owen, and you could keep mentioning the great galaxy of Puritanical preachers, what you read in their works is what they preached. And that's very important to keep in mind because that is why the church of today has a rich source of material uh, to read and to study, and I encourage you to do that. I often do that in preaching. I refer to books, and I urge you to, to read, uh, because they're there for your benefit and for your, uh, your edification. So, I draw that from this fact that this man Haggai actually put down in writing what he had preached to the people of his day. In reference to that, he was a very meticulous man, because his messages are recorded here in this one little book. Now, we cannot say that this is all he ever preached. In fact, I feel that would not be the case. Undoubtedly, he would have preached much more of which we know nothing. But this book contains those messages, four of them, that he delivered to the returned captives at that time when they were rebuilding the temple, and it resulted, it is what's in this record here, resulted in the recommencement of the work of the building of the second uh, temple. These are sermons, therefore, that have a very uh, important message for the church of Jesus Christ even to this particular day. And so, by inspiration of the Spirit, they were put down in writing, and yet we can call them Haggai's sermon notes, even though they are inspired by the Spirit of God for scriptural purposes. That is not the case in any other time. The Reformers, the Puritans, their writings were not inspired by God, but at the same time the principle is there that they put on record what they had studied, what they therefore went forth to preach. You have, so you have Haggai's sermon notes, but then you have Haggai's sermon numbering. Because you will find that in this book, and I've mentioned this already, there are four of his sermons, and they're all dated by day, by month, and by year. Look at chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, etc., etc. And the rest of this chapter is the content of that first sermon. Now, what I, ha I feel we have here is a synopsis, a summary of what he actually would have preached. But nonetheless, there is the date of that first message, and it's in a very, very detailed form. The sixth month, the first day of the month, 
in the second year of Darius the king. Then chapter 2, verse 1, In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, and that would have been the same year. Chapter 2, verse 10, gives you the third sermon. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. And then chapter 2 and verse number 20, And again the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, that is, the seventh, the ninth month. And so when you read this carefully, what you'll find is that God the Holy Spirit actually moved Haggai to put down the dates. Now, can we actually find out the year? We can, because Darius is the king. It's the second year of Darius, as it tells us in some of these references. And this man, Darius, he's known as Darius the Mede. There was Cyrus the Persian. He's mentioned in the book of Ezra, at the very start of the book of Ezra. And of course, we've seen that already in our studies from Ezra. But alongside him, there was his nephew, Darius. And that's why that empire was called the Empire of the Medes and the Persian, or the Persian Median Empire. Because Cyrus was a Persian, and Darius was a Mede ancient nations, ancient uh, peoples in those Bible times. And so, this man Darius is from that people called the Medes, and he is related to Cyrus. That's history that's actually recorded for us in the other writings of that time, and it's accurate, and it is uh, verified over and over again. And so, this man Darius, he actually came to reign, and that took place in 522 B.C., his uncle Cyrus had reigned, and then he came after him as the actual emperor in, in that year, 522. This is the second year of his reign. Now we're therefore at 520 B.C. So, on the first day of the sixth month in the year 520, Darius preached, or sorry, um, Haggai preached the first message that we have in chapter 1. And it goes on from there. Then you have the seventh month in chapter 2, verse 1. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, you've got the ninth month. And what you actually find there is that all this specific timing that's in view here, running from the sixth month right through to the ninth month. So if you count up month 6, 7, 8, 9, this means that four months of that year are in view in this little book. Why does the Lord give all that detail. What's so important about the very day when the first message came, and then the very day when the fourth message came? What's that, why is that in here, in this book? It's to show you and me that God makes a record of every message that is ever preached. That's what it means. Now, you think of all the messages that have been preached down through time by men of God, and the vast majority of them we know nothing about. We just know about a few. If you take Bible preachers, well, their names are throughout the Bible. But after that, you only have the names of the, of the men who, who were raised up by God to, to do a certain work, a very important work, perhaps, in the sense of dealing with a controversy or whatever it may be. The man who stands out at uh, one point in the early church uh, records is a man called Athanasius. And he was a mighty man of God. And he opposed another man called Arius. And Arius is the father of what's called Arianism, which is a denial of the Trinity and the denial of the deity of Christ and so on. And so he was a heretic. He was within the Christian church, but Athanasius rose up and he combated Arius and he defended the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus, and that's why his name stands out in church history. So you have men like that, whose names we do know of, have ever read any church history. And if you go down through time, well, Calvin's name is bound to stand out because he, at a very young age, wrote what are called his Institutes. Before he was 30 years old, he had put down in 
a marvelous form of what he saw from the Bible as a converted priest out of Romanism. And therefore, he did a mighty work for the whole church of God. His name's bound to stand out in church history. And I could keep mentioning other names, but the point is, it's only a few. And there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of faithful men of God who have preached the Word down through time. And Haggai reminds us of something here by the fact that his sermons are all numbered. You not only have the notes, but you've got the numbering of when he actually preached them in terms of the dates. And all of that is designed to teach you and me today that as men preach, God makes a record of what they've preached. Why? Because it will all be used in the day of judgment. What a man has preached, I mean a faithful word from the Lord, is going to be brought back up again at a future day, and it will be used as a testimony and a witness against those who have been disobedient, who haven't listened to the Word of God, who have rejected the Word of God, who have gone away in their sin, or maybe even from another more positive point of view, I believe this will be the case as well, their messages will be brought up, or the fact that they preached on a certain occasion, and this soul was saved, and that soul was saved, and God used that message to bless souls and save them, or build up the saints, or whatever the outcome, the Lord was at war. You see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the preaching of the gospel is either a savor of life unto life or of death unto death. The Word of God always has an impact. Always. It either is a savor of life unto life or of death unto death. The latter is very solemn because when people hear the Word of God, Maybe that is used to save somebody else in that given meeting, on that given date. Somebody else hears it, who rejects it, who despises it, who holds on to his or her sin and is eventually lost. And in that sense, it becomes a savor of death to that soul. And so, her, her, uh, Haggai's sermon notes and Haggai's sermon numbering. These details stand out. It would be wrong not to note these things because they are very important. They've got practical lessons uh, for our souls today as we uh, read these pages. Chapter 1, therefore, records the first message in this series of four that are recorded in this little book uh, by the Lord's messenger. And the first message was designed to awaken and stir up the remnant of 50,000 returned captives. That was a number thereabouts who came back from Babylon. And that was necessary because while the full detail is not given in, in Ezra, you see, you do read in Ezra about Haggai and Zechariah coming along and preaching, and, and the people are stirred up and they begin to work. That, uh, the, 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 what you have in chapter 1 here is not actually in Ezra. Therefore, Ezra's first message is to show that there was fault, there was blame on the part of the congregation with regard to the stalemate situation that had come about regarding the building of the house of the Lord. And you know what I'm talking about. We're going to get into that now in more detail. But there are three parts to this sermon in chapter 1. Three points, as it were, that Haggai brings out. Number one, the confrontation. And you see that from verses 2 to 5. Because in those verses... Haggai confronts the Lord's people about their attitude toward the Lord's work. Look at chapter 1 here, verse number 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, and the people there are God's people, the people have been released from Babylon, this people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then verse number 4, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now, I've already explained to you in dealing with Ezra what was going on here. 
when they came back from Babylon, they rebuilt the altar of the Lord, and they laid the foundation of the temple, and then the enemy rose up, and the work stopped. And I've already shown you in the studies from Ezra that for about 20 years, nothing else happened. Now, that's a long time in a relative sense. If we, if a church body, a congregation, whatever one it might be, was building a new building, and they got the foundation, and then nothing else happened for 20 years, you would certainly conclude those are long years. But does that not happen at times? Not merely physically, but with regard to the attitude that we often have to the work of God. And these people here have got the wrong attitude. And if you look at those verses uh, in chapter 1, you will find that they had grown complacent. That's why they weren't building. They had become very carnal in their outlook. And therefore, Haggai has to confront them about these these facts. Look at verse number 6. And notice what he tells them there, that they had suffered the chastening of the Lord because of their neglect and their complacency and their carnal thinking, because they were giving all the attention that they should have been giving to God's house to their own affairs and neglecting God's house. And therefore God had chastened them. Look at verse 6, as I said, "'Ye have sown much, bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm.'" He that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. What is that verse saying? That verse is actually saying that God had not blessed their labors with regard to their own affairs. They had sown and they uh, had certain things in their lives, but they were not satisfied. It's all uh, futile and, and vain as far as they feel about all these things, and they don't seem to realize that the Lord is withholding His blessing because they have not attended to the things of God, and therefore the Lord was chastening them because of their attitude and their carnal ways. And that means that there therefore was fruitlessness, as verse 6 shows. They had sown much, brought in little, and all of the terms that are there right through this first chapter. I know we've looked at this chapter in detail in one of the messages from Ezra, therefore I'm not going into it in detail today, but just bring out the main points. Look at verse number 10. Therefore the heaven over you has stayed from dew, and the earth has stayed from her fruit. And I call for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Notice, brethren and sisters, that there's not a realm where destitution is found, or poverty arises, or failure emerges, that the hand of the Lord is not present. Who is the one who sends drought? Who is the one who causes crops to fail? Who is the one who brings a fruitless period? It is God, and it's always done out of chastisement for sin. And we should pay heed to that. You know, that's a principle and must be kept in mind with regard to all the calamities that come upon the face of the earth. Calamities. And we've seen one this week. And it's tragic as we think about the destruction and the death in these nations like Turkey and Syria. But why has this happened? Why is the hand of God heavily upon nations like that? And that's just one instance. Why is that? Because the human race is in rebellion against God. And God's chastening, judging hand is upon the nations for their sin. But by the same token, the Lord's chastening hand also falls upon His church. For our carnality, our disobedience, our failure to do the work of God and to attend to the things of the Lord. And therefore the Lord chastens. Look at verse 10 again. It says, Therefore the heaven over you has stayed from dew, and the earth has stayed from her fruit. Where there's no dew, there's no fruit. That's the thought in that verse. Now, in the Bible, I know there's a physical dew and dew here. That's certainly true. And the fruitlessness of the earth is also physically true. 
But in the Bible, Jew is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And taking the church of God, when we neglect the things of God, then the Holy Spirit is withheld, and there's not the freshness, and there's not the blessing, and there's not the growth, and there's not the fragrance of the work of the Holy Spirit among us because of neglect of the things of God. This is what the first message is all about. He has to confront these people about their own ways, whereas, on the other hand, the ways of God are totally neglected by these people, and therefore nothing is happening with regard to the building of the house of God. So there's confrontation. Their sin is confronted, and sin must be confronted by the preacher. Uh, with regard to the Lord's people, never mind people in general. Sin must be exposed, sin must be rebuked, sin must be dealt with as God gives His Word. That's exactly what Haggai is doing. God has given him a Word. It's not nice. It doesn't sit well with the people undoubtedly at first. They won't like it. They will feel maybe angry about it. All those reactions still happen, you know. They still take place in people's hearts when sin is exposed and sin is rebuked and, and the preacher has to bring a message that is heavy in that sense of confronting sin. People don't like that. And so there's confrontation. But then secondly in his message there's restoration, this first sermon. His preaching only was designed to expose but to exhort in order to break their hearts and move them to repentance. So look with me at verse number 5, and it says, Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And in verse 7, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And what the Lord does when He makes that double exhortation, consider your ways, He then draws their attention to all their failure, all the failure of Oh, that was so apparent. I've already read verse 6 and these other verses where the fruitlessness and the emptiness and the destitution of the land were actually a testimony to the fact that they needed to consider their ways. And you see, God here is exhorting these people to consider their ways in order to bring them to repentance. Those words, consider your ways, literally mean set your heart on your ways. Consider your ways. Set your heart on your ways. And what that means is they've been called on, they've been exhorted to consider seriously where they've gone wrong, their own ways that have brought this failure. You've got to set your heart and really look carefully at where you went astray. That's what the Lord's saying to them. Turn to me with me, please, to Psalm 119 and verse number 59, and, and there you will see uh, similar words, Psalm 119 and the verse number 59, and we have these words. The psalmist says, I thought on my ways. The same idea, considering your ways. This man says, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. As he considered his ways, he realized that for a period he had been walking amiss, going astray, and therefore, as he thought on his ways, he had to turn. God needs to do that with us all, doesn't He? We need to be confronted about our sin, and we need to be exhorted to consider our ways, set our heart upon our own ways, and see where we have gone wrong, take careful stock of our lives. Let me say to you, brethren and sisters, that can only happen when you are on your knees in prayer or some other posture in prayer. You can be kneeling or sitting or whatever. But I'm telling you now, it's a time when every one of us every day need to get before God and set our heart on our ways, find out where we have gone wrong. Gone astray, that's the case. Look at Proverbs 4, verse 26, just to bring this out. It says, Ponder the path of thy feet, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Sorry, ponder the path. I should have read verse 25 as well. Let thine eyes look right on. Proverbs 4.25. Let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet. 
and let all thy ways be established. And so, taking those two verses together, the whole thought is of the child of God actually realizing, I need to walk correctly. As Paul puts it, circumspectly in the book of Ephesians, I must go straight on. I must go forward uh, on a straight path. And then verse 26, ponder the path of thy feet. In other words, consider it again. See just where you are, how you're walking, how you're behaving, whatever it might be. Let all thy ways be established. There needs to be this kind of attitude uh, of brokenness over our failure, over our sin. That's what uh, Haggai is dealing with. And one other reference that to me is very important, very relevant. Lamentations, four, Lamentations 3, verse number 40. It says, Let us lift up our heart with our hands. Well, that's verse 41. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Lamentations 3.40. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. And so, brethren and sisters, in a message that's from God, there will be confrontation, but there must also be exhortation. And the exhortation is that we're to apply our hearts with all seriousness to the needs of our souls and the issues of our sins. Be inquisitive about these matters. Your own life, your own walk with God, your own soul's spiritual state. That is a very important thing. That is why the Puritans used the term that we are to keep short accounts with God. We just don't drift along day after day after day after day, knowing full well that we're not really reading the Bible, we're not spending time in prayer, we're not living for God. We're focusing on our own things the majority of our time. And all these things that are spiritual and, and beneficial are being neglected. And so Haggai has to deal with that. He has to exhort these people to consider their ways Set your heart on your ways. Notice that. Consider your ways. Not somebody else's ways. We're very good at that, you know. Good at dealing with others and trying to sort them out. But what about our own ways? Those things that the Lord sees and maybe other people don't see. Reflect on your own spiritual state, is what the Lord is saying to us there. And then look at verse number 8. It's an interesting verse. It says, Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Now, that was literally so. They needed wood to rebuild that temple. Yes, stone, and then wood for the beams and all the boards of the temple and so on. And so the Lord said, go up the mountain, get the wood, and build the house. Now, how do we apply that to ourselves? And it's simply this. What is needed is available. Just put it that way. The Lord said, go up that mountain because the wood that you need is up there. Go and get it. My dear friend, there's a spiritual lesson that I put it to you in that way. What we need, the materials that we need for our spiritual benefit are available and they are accessible. And let me tell you something. You need to go up to get them. That's what the Lord said. Go up and get the wood. And there's a lesson, that little detail that's very important. You will not get the right material for your soul. You will not get the right help for your spiritual life except by going up, going up to the Lord, going up in prayer, going up in meditation, going up to the Lord to obtain from Him all that's available in Jesus Christ for your spiritual benefit. And see, it's all there. That's the glorious thing. What we need, what we require for our spiritual uh, growth and development as this exhortation shows us, is available to us. Christ has done all that we need to save us, but also more than that, Christ has accomplished everything that we need to live the Christian life and walk with God and enjoy it. 
See, that's the, that is the vital thing about, about being a Christian, enjoying what we have in Jesus Christ. And I have said that, I've used that expression down through these more than 22 years now over and over again. Enjoying who you are in Jesus Christ. That's the way to live the Christian life. That will motivate you. That will cause you to want the things of God and see the emptiness of earthly, material things. Not that they're not important in their own place, but they must not dominate. That was the problem here. That's why their sin had to be confronted. Those material things about their own lives were taking precedence to the things of God in the house of God. And so they had to be confronted. They had to be exhorted. And the exhortation is designed to break their hearts and cause them to see their need. And that brings me to my final thought here in Ezra's or Haggai's first message. There is the point of confrontation, there's the point of exhortation. But then, thank God, there's the point of humiliation. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people did fear before the Lord. And so there was obedience. It says they obeyed the voice of the Lord in the first part of that verse. And then there was fear. And that word fear simply signifies reverence. It indicates that these effects of obedience and reverence were immediate upon the delivery of this message. Now, the message came, remember, on the first day of that sixth month. Notice something interesting. Verse, four, excuse me, verse 14, it says toward the end of the verse, it says there, "...they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God." in the four-and-twentieth day of the sixth month. What do you find there? You find that the work didn't actually start as a result of this first message until three weeks after the message was preached. There was the immediate result of obedience and fear filling their hearts, reverence filling their hearts. They resolved to do the work of God and then for about three weeks, what was going on? I believe that during those three weeks, they were mourning and they were repenting over their sin. They were brokenhearted. And then they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And the date's actually given, the 420th day of the sixth month. That's not another message reference that is a date that has to do with the effect of that first message. That is striking. You see, a word can be preached on a certain date. And it may not be until, well, here it's three weeks or thereabouts. Well, it may be longer than that or whatever the time. It might be months. It might be years. And then the results come. Then the effect is felt deeply. The humiliation of heart and soul and life, that's what we see in these words here at the end of Haggai chapter 1. There was a space of time before the work actually recommenced. They took time to seek God, no doubt to pray, no doubt to get things ready even, get up the mountain and get the wood, as I showed you earlier. All this was part of this humiliation. They realized we've been neglecting the house of God. We haven't been attending to it. And now we need to get back to it. This is restoration as a result of their humiliation. God is at work in their hearts and they're broken and they're contrite. And then they begin to do the work. And so... What a marvelous sermon this was. You want to use the word sermon or message. It doesn't matter. The first of the four messages that were brought by Haggai to these people, it was delivered undoubtedly in the power of the Holy Ghost by this man. It was brought 
by one who was sent by God, and it was a very solemn message. As I've shown you, there was confrontation in it, there was exhortation in it, but it resulted in humiliation and brokenness. And that's God's order. That's always God's order. God deals with the heart first, and the heart can only be dealt with when sin is confronted, and when the pricks of conscience come, and then the brokenness develops, and humiliation is felt. That's God's order. And you know, the world wants to reverse it. Even in the, in the modern church, that is despised. Uh, preaching that is light and frothy and bubbly, and, and it's all designed to make people feel happy and feel good about themselves, and sin is never mentioned, and hell is never warned against or whatever, and they go on their way, and they think all is well, and uh, somebody has died, and they're up there in heaven looking down. I am sick and tired of that. It's a lie. The greatest rascal who ever lived is up in heaven looking down on us. Sin is never mentioned. The things of God are never brought to bear and brought to view at all, and there's no humiliation. There's no uh, desire for the Lord or the things of God. And so, Haggai's first message, what a message it was. I trust that today you will take stock of what he had to say, that as we look briefly here at the actual content of the message under these three points that are clearly in the message, God will show to us the importance of the preaching of the Word and the man of God coming with the Lord's message. In the Lord's message, his own soul is immersed, and he brings it, he delivers it, and he preaches it so that there will be a fruit that will remain. We have to leave it there. Time's gone, and we pray that God will bless his Word to all of, all, all of our hearts. Let's just bow together now, and let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before Thee again, and in the name of Thy Son, we bless Thee for what we have noticed here today, and we thank Thee for the record of Haggai's preaching. We bless Thee, O Lord, for that faithful message that he delivered in that year 520 B.C., on the first day of the sixth month. And Lord, You've seen fit to record it for us today, that we might be able to benefit from it in our own generation. Use Thy Word, bring it with power to our hearts, and Lord, make it a blessing to our souls. And be with us today in the preaching of the Word that will take place in this house. And may Thy name be glorified, and may there be a work done for eternity as the Lord visits and the Lord moves. Hear and answer prayer, and continue with us, we pray, in Jesus' name and for His sake and glory. Amen.